Well, welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast. Today, we want to start by celebrating that Kingdom Roots podcast has hit 1 million downloads. We're very excited, and we wanted to thank all of you, our listeners, for being a part of our podcast. To say thank you, we're giving away three prize bundles worth more than $350. The three winners are Andrew Simpson, Nathaniel Stafford, and Connor Brooks. So Andrew, Nathaniel, and Connor, watch your email for instructions on how to go about getting your prize bundle of books by Scott McKnight and a subscription to Seminary Now. Thanks for listening and congratulations. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have Kristen Kobes Dumay as our guest to talk about the idol of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism. Kristen is a professor of history at Calvin University. She studies issues at the intersection of faith, gender, history, and politics. She recently wrote a book entitled Jesus and John Wayne, how White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. In this book, you look at the history of how American evangelicals have replaced the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism. So I think a great way to start this conversation is to ask, uh, what led you to write this book? What was stirring in the ethos that made you think this was a topic you wanted to tackle? Well, I wasn't so sure that I wanted to tackle this, to be honest, but the uh, research for this book goes back a very long time. It goes back more than 15 years. And I was a new professor at Calvin University at the time, and I was teaching a class in U.S. history, and I just finished a lecture on Teddy Roosevelt. And I was showing students how gender worked in history, so how Roosevelt's ideas of masculinity were linked to changing economics and were linked to uh, American empire and, and military power. And I thought it was a great little unit. And then after class, a couple of guys came up to me uh, from, from the section and just said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you need to read. And it was John Aldridge's Wild at Heart. And um, I listened to my students, I got a copy and I opened it up and I saw exactly what they were talking about. Aldridge opens his book with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And then he goes on to sketch this very uh, militant, militaristic conception of Christian manhood. And this was around 2005 or 2006 uh, when I came across the book. And that was right during the Iraq War. Um, when it was starting up, and we were seeing all this survey data coming out showing how white evangelicals were far and above more uh, likely to support the war, support preemptive war, condone the use of torture. And and so I started to ask, you know, how are these things connected? Uh, how, um, how might they be connected? This conception of a very militaristic Christian manhood and what we're seeing in terms of U.S. foreign policy. And so the roots uh, to the book uh, go back to that moment. Uh, and then I set it aside for a time. I wasn't quite sure I had the stomach for it, to be honest. Uh, what I was finding was so disturbing. And uh, and I wasn't entirely clear how mainstream all this was. Right? What I was reading was just it was so misogynistic, so um, militaristic. And 
And so I set it aside, um, got busy with life, other projects, wrote another book on Christian feminism. And then in the fall of 2016, I decided to pick it back up again. Uh, was it something specific in the fall of 2016? I <laughs> do recall there were a few things <laughs> happening that time. Yeah, let me uh, be was a little there more anything specific. in particular that made you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So in, yeah, at that point, it was actually in the days after the Access Hollywood tape released. Uh, so I'd been watching, uh, the election very closely. And I should actually go back and say that even though I, I, I set the project aside as, as a research project, I didn't stop paying attention. I kept following many of the men who had been promoting a really, uh, militant conception of Christian manhood. And over the years, I saw as one after another became implicated in scandal, in sexual abuse scandals, in abuse of power. And I just kept track. I watched as this all happened. And then in the fall of 2016, I was, I was actually working on a project on uh, the religious history of Hillary Clinton at the time. So I was watching the election very closely. And I was watching already in 2015, I was watching as white evangelicals started to um, back uh, then candidate Donald Trump. But it was really uh, with the release of the Access Hollywood tape in the fall of 2016, just weeks before the election, uh, that things kind of crystallized for me. You know, we saw, uh, um, you know, the majority of white evangelicals um, stay, uh, stay with Trump at that point. A few wavered ever so briefly. And then the vast majority were right back um, supporting this, this man who, who admitted to sexually assaulting women. And it was then that it hit me. Uh, we've seen this before, right? There's a pattern here. We've seen, we've seen exactly this. And at that point, I, I had this feeling of, uh, kind of dread thinking, uh, you know, I think I know what might happen here. And, and so it was just a few weeks later, we, we saw the, the infamous 81%. And, and at that point, I decided to brush off that old research and, and really, uh, uh write the book that became Jesus and John Wayne. Well, when I, when I saw the title, Kristen, uh, first of all, I gotta say, it's just a great book. I, I think I read it and I just kept going, wow. Wow. And I couldn't put it down. And my wife said, wow, you haven't gotten into a book like this for quite a while. So it's, I just think it's fantastic. And But when I saw the title, Jesus and John Wayne, I thought, oh, there can't be much about John Wayne in this group. Well, the number of times you found him mentioned by principal figures, I'm going, oh, my, what in the world? Well, Ryan Burgey, I don't know if you know Ryan Burgey. Mm -hmm. you know, he's he, have you blurbed his new book that's coming out? I have not, but I follow him on Twitter, if that counts for anything. Yeah. It count, well, he's got a book coming out from Fortress. And he is going to demonstrate, I think, and your book and Beth Allison Barr's book that's coming out. These books are really punching some of this stuff in the nose. And I, and I, you know, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm grateful for it. But Burgie, is going to demonstrate that far too many evangelicals, and I'm giving it a soft version right there, are more defined by their theology, I mean, by their politics, than by their theology. Yes. And the evangelicals like to claim their theology rules the roost, but he shows that time after time, it's a political correlation that leads to a theological legitimation to use sociological categories. So I'm uh, when I read your book, I was just amazed 
at the correlations that keep coming up between, you know, I've heard about masculine Christianity. I've read about Billy Sunday. Um, and, you know, of course, Billy Graham in his early days was very politically involved and, um, D.L. Moody was politically involved. So there, there was a lot of politics, but, but, uh, it was communism. It was a willingness to fight in military to bring about, you know, the country. So it's just so many of those themes that come up. And, uh, you know, I cannot isolate one story in your book, uh, that brings up, you know, just say, why this one? That one. there are so many, uh, that just kept coming up. But I wonder if you talk about a couple of these major charismatic type leaders who have shaped evangelicalism toward this masculinist, um, militaristic understanding of the Christian faith. Sure. Yeah. Um, and first of all, I'll say, too, I was surprised at how frequently John Wayne came up. I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. Not at all. And uh, But what what struck me early on when I started reading you know, books like Eldridge and then by 2005 and 2006, there, there were dozens of these things out there. You know, Eldridge's book sold more than 4 million copies. So that launches this kind of copycat industry. And, you know, there are a dime a dozen. It was actually really tempting at the time. You know, I thought I could write one of these so easily it's you know you've got the stock <laughs> figures you've got the you know it, it's it's it, it, they basically plagiarize each other and you know even the the moderate sellers are, are selling a couple hundred thousand so it, it's it's humbling uh but what i saw is you know i had always heard evangelicals self-identify as bible believing christians and uh but they weren't really citing the bible very much <laughs> in these books and they when they did it was just ripped out of context uh they were looking to hollywood to hollywood heroes um to mel gibson's william wallace to mythical warriors and soldiers and cowboys and and then and that's where john wayne just kept popping up and so so that's when you know it it, it really dovetails with exactly what you were saying what what really comes first here this isn't theologically driven in a way that white evangelicals like to claim that it is so, uh, so who are the, a couple of the, the charismatic figures? Honestly, I don't know that there's anybody more central to this story than James Dobson. Yeah. Uh, right. And he, and he's not known for his militancy necessarily. Well, I guess these days he kind of is, but, uh, in, in decades past, you know, he is this, he's just the family values guy. He's, he's going to just tell you how to raise your kids and, uh, and, and that's definitely the image that he puts out there. But when you go back and look at what he's writing, at how you're supposed to be raising your kids, how you're supposed to be disciplining, just how important gender difference is and what that means to him and how anti-feminist he is, like consistently across the decades and how deeply political he is. That, I mean, to me, James Dobson is just, is, is really in some ways the center of this story. And it bothers me that other historians who have written about, uh, American evangelicalism, you know, don't see him. <laughs> Often they, you know, you could read a whole book about evangelicalism and not find Dobson in it or maybe a, a mention. And then, and, you know, so they're talking about the theological debates or, you know, who's at this seminary or that. And, and, and I'm, I'm trying to shift the center. Uh, to somebody like Dobson. So I think Dobson is critical and he, he demands or, or, or such a loyalty, right, uh, of his, uh, or, or he, he's able to just develop this, this loyal following 
because there are millions of Americans who listen to him every single day. And he's this comforting, trusting voice, this authority. And I've heard from so many readers of Jesus and John Wayne who say, I had no idea. And, and, and this was my childhood. This was my life, right? Just so deeply influenced. And then, you know, formed spiritually and politically and culturally formed, uh, through, through that, um, uh, kind of relationship. So James Dobson is is just really critical. Uh, who else would I point to? I'm going to go. It's it's hard. There's so many. Uh, I, I would uh, look to uh, in the 2000s uh, figures like Mark Driscoll and Doug Wilson fascinated me. Uh, one of the 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 kind of questions throughout this research project is who is mainstream and who is fringe here, right? Who's marginal? And and both Driscoll and Wilson kind of present that problem for me. So Doug Wilson is certainly not mainstream, right? He'd be offended if you claimed that he was mainstream. He takes pride in being fringe. And yet what I saw is um, from the 1990s into the 2000s, uh, he moves from the fringes pretty close to the mainstream. And he does so not by softening his misogynistic views, his racist views, right? But by um, having those views resonate more broadly within the mainstream evangelical movement. Uh, and so he gets a platform at Christianity Today. Uh, and, uh, and just watching that relationship uh, was kind of really central to the research for this book. And then somebody like Mark Driscoll as well, right? Where it's easy to kind of roll your eyes um, thinking, you know, what is this, you know, again, fringe, uh, ultra misogynistic, crass, um, laughable, really, to outsiders. And yet to see the influence that he wielded within mainstream evangelicalism, how influential he was for an entire generation of, of evangelical pastors, those are the kinds of figures that came to fascinate me. Kristen, your um, book does something that I have long suspected, uh, and I have read books on evangelicalism. I have literally, I have six feet of books on my bookshelves about evangelicalism. It's a cottage industry. And I've read almost all of these books. And uh, I've followed the debates. And always I was saying to myself something that uh, I didn't, I don't know that I didn't, ha- I don't know if I had the insight or the courage to say. But occasionally I saw it, and that is, this is not really a battle of theologians. It's not B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge. It's not, um, let's say, Wayne Grudem, although in part it is, uh, and John Piper. It is, this is fought in the trenches by uh, what I would say, it's a part of populist evangelicalism. Yes. And your book shows I think that just making this a theological dispute is a massive mistake. It's so much bigger, which also means it's so much harder to to uh, address. But um, I wonder if you have anything uh, to add, any kind of line of thinking to help people understand uh, what populist evangelicalism means and why it's it's. More, I remember one time there was a big article in Christianity Today 
And I wrote in a letter to the editor. I said, you know, you have completely neglected music. And music has a huge impact on what evangelicals believe. It's just all as if it's just a theological set of statements that if we get these right, we'll get everything right. So um, your social history, your so I, I think you call it that, social history, uh, populism, shifting the center of this discussion away from systematic theology beliefs to the realities that are lived in ordinary churches. Uh, and I'll make one, I'm talking too much here, I'm sorry, but I, I have learned this, that um, I've had past students who are pastors now who can't talk about certain things because of the force of the people in the congregation. They Absolutely. cannot say we shouldn't be connected to the Republican Party or they'll lose their job. So you go ahead. You. I know some it. of the same. Yes. Uh, no, this is exactly right. So uh, this observation that theology, strictly speaking, is not at the heart of evangelicalism really uh, came to me both through my disciplinary lens. That, yes, I'm a cultural historian, and so I'm fascinated by, um, you know, what what really shapes people's values. Uh, and, and, you know, we live in a consumer culture, and many evangelicals live within a religious consumer culture. Uh, but I also, again, I'm a professor at a Christian university, and I have seen now for, for more than 15 years, I've seen students come into my classes, many of them evangelical students. And, uh, and I, I teach them courses on developing a Christian mind, and I give them a dose of reformed theology, and, and I see just how theologically illiterate the vast majority actually are. And it's not a generational thing even. Many their parents are the same. Right? I, I, I've attended evangelical churches and uh, you know, the theological literacy is um, uh, is shockingly low. Uh, there's all kinds of, of survey data that bear this out, right? The, uh, an alarming number of you know, so-called evangelicals actually believe in heresies. And, and, and so then I started thinking as a scholar, if this is true, and it certainly seems to be, uh, then why are we suggesting that a kind of theological rubric defines evangelicalism? Uh, that might make sense if you're an intellectual historian or if you're a theologian or if you're holding up some ideal of what you think evangelicalism ought to be, but it doesn't get at the lived experience of uh, people who call themselves evangelicals, people that we're calling evangelicals. Uh, and so that's yep. what um, yep. what I'm doing here is, uh, and it's not that theology doesn't enter into this picture, right? W Wayne Grudem has a role. John Piper has a role. But, um, it's, uh, and it's, it's this kind of, um, uh, pastors in the pulpits have less of a role than they might have thought they had. And that's why I think many are, are running up against the limits of their own authority because the people in their pews, maybe hear them talk for a half an hour on a Sunday if they're long-winded. Uh, and if, if they're, the people in the pews are paying the attention, any attention. Otherwise, right, what are they consuming day in, day out? Listening to Christian radio, listening to Christian music, uh, listening to Focus on the Family. Uh, what are they reading in their book studies? You know, are they reading Wild at Heart? Are they reading Purpose Driven Life? Right. So there is then this, this 
cultural evangelicalism. That is, it's a mass culture. And so evangelicals, whether you're in a rural church in Georgia or a suburban church in Orange County, you're consuming the same culture and you're, you're being formed by the, by very similar values. And then it gets really hard for leaders within these communities to actually lead. You can only lead if you go get out in front of this kind of populist movement, right? But as soon as you try to redirect or 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 correct, uh, you can just be uh, set aside, and they'll find a new leader that is saying what they want that leader to say, mm-hmm. right? And again, so there's this populist movement, and that and in the importance of consumer culture, I think is, is, has really been underrated. Um, and, and to look at that, then who's producing this? Again, some theologians are, are producing this, you know, John Piper, you have the Gospel Coalition. You have to look at, uh, Lifeway Christian Books, the SBC, you know, these distribution networks. You have to look at Christian Contemporary Music, Salem Radio. And that's where we should be looking to understand who defines the boundaries and values of evangelicalism. Well, I, I think this is brilliant. I, I am so grateful for this because this is the evangelicalism that I have experienced. You know, I, I teach students and I write books and I exegete and I think, this is what evangelicals believe. And then I go into these churches and, I, I, you know, it was, I called it, I call it Reaganology because I think Ronald Reagan, that era really reshaped uh, although I, I know there are some really good historians right now on evangelicalism who are saying, you know, evangelicals have always been involved in politics. They never were yeah. completely out. Yeah. So, uh, but it, there's a Reaganology about it that has reshaped it. It gave rise to James Kennedy, James Dobson, um, James Wall- Jim Wallace, who was on the other side at the yes. same time yes. with a very small, very small pocket. Uh, and it's so much bigger now. So I, I just, I am so grateful for this attempt to shift the focus away from just theological ideas to the realities uh, that go on. So my my last question for you, Kristen, uh, other than trying to get everybody to read your book, um, is where's the hope for us? What what can we do, uh, you know, to to shift evangelicalism away from masculinist, militaristic uh, Christianity to the core of the gospel? You know, I I like to say the Jesus Creed of loving God and loving others and being tov and all these things are really important. But how can we? What can we do? What do you see as possible influences? So when I when I got to the end of this book, I um, it, it was it was a heavy book to write, right? It it was it was distressing. Uh, it, it felt empowering, honestly, to put it all into words <laughs> and to to kind of hold this up to name this. Mm-hmm. But when I got to the end of my conclusion, I um, I I did not have much hope. To be honest, uh, having written this history, I saw just how deeply embedded these values are, right? And we're talking yeah. generations now. And I saw the power behind them and that power persists. And so my editor actually wrote me after he read all his way through, through the entire manuscript and he said, you, Kristen, can you give us any hope? <laughs> can 
can you give us <laughs> give us something in this conclusion? And so I, I looked at it and I, I thought about the, the book as a whole. And then I wrote him, I said, I don't think I can. I, I don't think I can. I'm not, I'm not, I need to be honest. I'm not feeling much hope. It's, it's just so embedded. And he said, I respect that. And then about two days later, he wrote back. He's like, could you just give us something? <laughs> this is just a lot to leave readers with. And so that's when I gave him the last sentence of the book which is what was once done can also be undone. And honestly, at the time, it felt too feeble. It really did. Uh, but he said, okay, we'll take it. And, uh, but, but honestly, that I, I believe that. As a historian, I believe that there is power in knowing your history. There is a lot of power, especially, I think, for evangelicals who have a tendency to think of uh, you know, whatever they, they hold to be true as God-ordained and has been this way throughout all of time. And if you can say, you know, actually not, <laughs> actually no, uh, you know, Christian masculinity has looked very different in different times and places. Uh, connection, uh, Christian militarism, very different. Christian nationalism, uh, that, and then this constellation of all these things coming together has not always been this way. And once you can see that, then you can start asking, how did it get to be this way, right? Who was making these decisions and to what ends? And is this really where we want to be? Or do we need to undo some of this? And, and so I do think that there is a power in seeing that history and seeing how we got to where we are now. And that frees us up to ask, you know, is this where we want to be and where do we want to go from here? Um, but I, I have to say that the real hope that I, um, am holding on to right now in terms of, you know, beyond otherworldly hope, uh, would be the reception of this book thus far among evangelicals themselves. I did not expect it to be embraced in the way it has been by evangelicals. And and for the reason I think that you suggest, this is a, a popular history. It's a cultural history where people recognize their own lives. And so I have received hundreds and hundreds of letters in the last six months from readers saying, this is the story of my life. And then they just, they just pour out their memories and how they line up with this book. And so many people saying, you know, I, this, I participated in this. Some of these people who are writing me are leaders at evangelical organizations or have been. And, you know, they produced some of this culture. And they said, you know, but never really saw how it all came together mm. or never really understood what it would end up leading to. And, uh, and, and so just, you know, saying this is not where we want to be and, and, uh, a, a real humility and a real openness to deconstruction and a real, um, sense of urgency for, um, for doing something different, right? For, for, uh, for rethinking what it means to, to follow Christ, uh, as you say, to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and that's, that's, that's helpful to me. I did not expect that kind of reception in white evangelical communities. Um, so we'll see what happens next. Well, um, I think we're getting close to the end here. And I, uh, I, I agree with you that what has been done can be undone. But um, I'm old enough now to have a long enough memory to wonder how long it's going to take to make these shifts. Yeah. You know, to me, the gospel of Jesus dying for the sake of others and not seeking to coerce people, but giving them the freedom to follow him 
but yet showing them a way of following is not the way of power, but the way of, let's say, using one's power for the sake of another. You know, I, I look around and I, I see some people like this, but I see so many evangelical Christians caught in the web of power. And almost the movement is, can we control Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Uh, rather than believing that that Jesus and his vision is transformative of a person's life and at the local level. So yeah. I'm just so, I just, I can't say enough about how, how wonderful the book is. And uh, what you just said is totally true of me. I read it. I said, I remember it. You know, from the beginning, I remember all these stories happening. And, uh, you know, the story I often tell people is I was in the car with Wayne Grudem when he and John Piper got control of the RSV after it became the NRSV because they hated that inclusive translation. And the ESV as a translation is a modification of the old RSV in the direction of complementarianism and and you go, this is powerful. This is these people's the Bible itself yes. it is uh being used for certain agendas and it's tribal. So oh it gets discouraging, but uh, your book has given me a lot of hope. So I, I just want to thank you for it. I don't know what Laura uh I know Laura just she loves your book too. So I do. I I read it and I had the same sensation of this feels like my history. This is my history of growing up in church. I know these names. I remember these trends. I remember all of this happening. Um, and in some ways it was so hard because it's like the sad, hard parts of your history that you don't not want the world to know about. Like it's a little bit embarrassing. And I remember having that feeling of like, Oh my goodness, this is so true. And it's so helpful to be able to name it. But at the same time, it just it feels so discouraging. But I was thinking as Scott was talking about just in the last five years, um, it's kind of a mixed bag of watching different churches stumble and fall in some pretty big ways, mm-hmm. um, which is disheartening. But at the same time, thinking there are people standing up to these things and saying, this is not the gospel. This is not who Jesus is. And the way that churches are using power in certain instances um, don't represent the gospel of Christ. So I do hope that um, there are small pockets of people who are recognizing these things and who are, um, you know, uncovering some of that false power. So it is, there's a little bit of hope, um, but it's it's such an important conversation to have. And Kristen, I'm so thankful that you were willing to dig in and stick with it and um, pull back the covers a little bit so we can see our own history and name the things and identify them um, so that perhaps history could be undone. So I appreciate that. Oh, thank so you. for all of you who are listening, um, we've had a conversation today with Kristen Cobas Dumay, and her book is Jesus and John Wayne. And I hope, like Scott says, everybody needs to read this. So grab a copy, spend some time learning a little bit about evangelical popular history, and hopefully we can represent the gospel better. So thank you for being here. We appreciate it. And thank you for this conversation. Thank you. 